Hey, I'm Dotsie Bausch, Olympic medalist and founder of Switch for Good, and I am with SoFlow Vegans. Welcome to the SoFlow Vegans Podcast. We bring you vegan experts from around the world to talk about health, the environment, animal advocacy, and spreading compassion. It's our passion to help you navigate the vegan lifestyle by listening to the experiences of vegan influencers, doctors, and experts. Thanks for listening. This is the SoFlow Vegans Podcast. And now your host, Sean Russell. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the SoFlow Vegans Podcast. I am your host and founder of SoFlow Vegans, Sean Russell. And today we have Dotsie Bausch, who is the founder of Switch for Good as well as an Olympic athlete, a humanitarian, and just an advocate for the animals and health. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Oh my gosh, right on. That's very <laughs> nice to, to meet your acquaintance and, and be on the show. Thank you. I heard so many good things about you. I've actually heard about Switch for Good a couple of years ago, and I believe I spoke with someone from your team and just all the things that you guys have done since then and and just I'm really excited to dig into this story and for our and for our listeners who are returning and for those of you who are new to the show welcome. Yeah. We we start off with a segment called the vegan origin story. And the idea behind this is there's so many people out there who are vegan are going starting their journey and I feel it's helpful for them to hear how others have done it. And even if it's not for them, it can give them inspiration for that family member that might just be right there. And they can say, oh, you should hear this person's story. They're similar to you or, you know, so they're, this very inspiring. So that's why we start off with the vegan origin story. So with that little bit of background, <laughs> what is your vegan origin story? It's kind of like a rebirth, isn't it? It's like a rebirth story. Of, yeah. Gosh, I was... 37 at the time. I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky, and I grew up on every animal food you could imagine. And for 37 years of my life, I ate all of the animals and all of the secretions that came from those animals and loved animals at the same time, but didn't make the connection, but didn't put it together. And so fast forward to 37, I am a couple of years out from the Olympic Games, but I haven't made the Olympic team yet. I mean, I'm still fighting for that spot that uh, I was um, lucky enough to, to receive and go to the 2012 Olympic Games. And, and as you mentioned, um, st stood on the podium uh, just a couple months shy of my 40th birthday, with the silver medal. And so I am just head down, right? I'm a couple years out. I am training hard. I am giving every last ounce of everything I have, mind, body, and spirit to this quest to make the Olympic team. And I came across, wasn't looking for it, hadn't gone searching, hadn't gone down the rabbit hole yet. I came across some animal slaughter footage. It was of pigs and it happened to be in Spanish. So it was in another country. I'm not exactly sure where. And it was to this day, some of the most awful footage I've seen. And you and I have both seen some mm -hmm. pretty nasty stuff that is shocking, but just will rip your heart right out of your chest from second one. And I was, when I first saw it, I just felt mostly confused because I didn't think that that was any sort of way that they would treat animals in our food system that, and I, and I, I was kind of a little bit snotty. I'll tell you, I was a little bit of Americana. I thought, well, that's some other country. Like mm -hmm. they're not going to treat animals like that in, in America. They're here to protect and serve the people. And you would never do that to our food, right? There's going to be all sorts of layers of issues with, with that con extreme confinement and containment and pain and slaughter and, you know, filth. And so I kind of sloughed it off a little bit. I was actually at a race at the time in Minnesota. So I flew back home to California after the race was over. And then I went down the proverbial mm -hmm. and the real rabbit mm -hmm. hole and found out 
so many of your listeners, I'm sure, are aware of the atrocities that take place every single millisecond of every day across the world to the animals that are trapped in our food system. And I had a moment that was just, I just, it wasn't, I felt sad, but I I just thought it was one of those moments where it was just like, okay, I can't be a part of that. So what am I going to do? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, that's not, that is not an option. And I didn't really seek more information at the time because I was so hyper-focused on what I was trying to do. And so I just sort of took it in my own way. I didn't say anything to anyone. I didn't share what I saw. I didn't tell anyone. I just internally was like, I'm going to have to make a match, massive shift to what I'm eating. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm an athlete and this is 2010. And I didn't even know of a vegan athlete. I didn't know that athletes could eat plants and not die uh, of a protein deficiency. So it was, it w- and I had been eating them my whole life, like I said. So it was just this kind of like, okay, I'm going to do this. How am I going to figure it out? And I just started on the journey of, of, of changing out foods and figuring it out and was, you know, completely plant-based with, in a matter of weeks. And it ended up serving me more incredibly than I ever could have imagined. I remember very vividly thinking, okay, I'm making the shift from animal foods to plant foods. Please, please just let me stay the same, right? I just mm. wanted to stay as strong as I want, as I was and have as good an endurance and as good a recovery. I had no idea that it was going to expand everything wow. to a much higher level than I had reached before. So it was... It was like a, it ended up being such a gift, which it still is today, but I wasn't expecting that. I was just yeah. expecting like, I'm gonna, not going to do this because it's not okay. And then it gave back to me in spades. It was incredible. And, and it's, it's the time period that you mentioned, we're talking at um, 2010. And I went, I started my journey 2008, but it stuck t- 2013. And a lot of you listening know what I'm talking about. You know, when you first get started, there's a lot of transitioning and figuring it out and figuring out your why and all of these different things that we've discussed on previous episodes. So take us back a little bit into the, that time period, because there's a lot of new vegans, a lot of people who are entering their journey, and they don't realize how fortunate they are with all of the options and yeah. in the in and obviously there's always room for you know more growth and 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 things of that nature. But right. 2010, paint the landscape yeah. for us what that looked like. Yeah. Well, it, there was I trained a lot at the Olympic training centers in Colorado Springs and Chula Vista. So uh, what people might not know, or they may, the the United States and New Zealand are the only two countries in the world that are not, their Olympic teams are not government funded. They have to go get private sponsors. And so the U.S. Olympic t- team went and got the dairy industry for uh, a full 10 years, which was, you know, the main years that I, that I was in there in, in that system. And so at the training centers, we had so much dairy pressed upon us. I mean, it was as if there was no other food and like, you know, we don't really need to call it a food on this podcast because it's not it's for us humans, but that would get you to the top step of the podium than the secretions from a dairy cow female. I mean, it's, it's like, it's just so ridiculous when you say it out loud, you know, like there's this one magic food, but, but they really, it really was pressed upon us. And, and I believed the lie for a while before I, I started shifting over. I mean, you just, you just do, you think that they are there to serve the athletes so that we can win medals for our country. And they're going to be giving us the very best food. And it's, it's all the truth, right? So I mean, Mm -hmm. it took me a while to really unpack that, but I got to tell you back then, I mean, when, when I switched over, you, you really eat, (laughs) I probably ate healthier than I do now because we have so many fun alternatives. Mm -hmm. It was really just, you know, from the ground, from the trees, from the sea. I mean, it was, it was, it was a lot of potatoes. I really learned the power of the carbohydrate and to stop being afraid of too much carbohydrates. As an athlete, I wasn't afraid of carbohydrates, but I was, I was afraid of too many because of, you know, supposed weight gain, which was really never the case. But 
So a, a lot of potatoes, a lot of legumes, a lot of nuts, a lot of seeds. I, I mean, I just sort of, sh I shifted over to more, the, the, the denser foods. I mean, I was still eating like really big leafy green salads every day, but I needed a lot of calories. I mean, I was going through, I was eating about 4,500 to 5,000 calories a day. So the, the, you can't really do that in kale. So I had to like really find the foods that had the calorie density that I needed, right? Because the animal foods are very calorie dense. Mm -hmm. So my plate expanded, you know, we, I was talking about it earlier with someone like the big gigantic vegan bowls that we have where it's like, that is usually the bowl that you serve everyone from, but it's our actual just bowl that we eat our food out of because we <laughs> eat like so much more volume. And so it was, it, it was, a, it was a lot more just from, like I said, from, from the earth, you know, and it was just shifting yeah. a few things around. I was already eating. I already liked vegetables and fruits. I mean, I, I wasn't eating, it's not like I was eating fast food every day. So yeah. I, I already liked those types of foods. So it was just really figuring out how to get the calorie density and how to uh, adjust the protein, which I actually thought was really easy. I mean, once I just got through my thick skull, that protein is protein is protein, and it comes from lots of different sources. Animal mm. foods have it, but so do plant foods. You don't have to get it from an animal food. And then it was like, oh, this is easy. I just, I know how many grams I need every day because I knew what muscle I was trying to grow. And so it was really just a math equation and, you know, just, just selecting the plant foods, the right ones. And you brought up a good point in your explanation. You know, when I'm looking at it, I'm looking at that transitional person who's looking to get into it. They may not be whole food plant-based. They're yeah. coming off of the standard American diet, looking just to replace what they already like to eat with a plant-based version. But, and right. you have individuals who are eating healthy, who don't mind, you know, eating from the ground, you know, eating, you know, whole foods. So, I guess the difference in my mind would be also mm -hmm. the education, the information, and also the delivery mm -hmm. mechanisms. You know, you have computers in our hands now that m around that time are probably just starting to capture mainstream, like with the iPhone and whatnot. Right. So I, so I feel like a lot has changed in yeah. that time period. So before we go full steam ahead with Switch for Good, because I know we're going to be able to cover a lot of ground with that. I want us to go even further back from that time period we were just talking about, because yeah. I know you have and a very inspirational story of how you even got to the Olympics. So I wanted, so I definitely wanted to uh, share that story. Have you share that story with our listeners? If, um, if you would want to take us to what got you to the point where you eventually discovered your love for cycling, which took you to amazing heights. Yeah, you have to be grateful for every, all of us have to be grateful for our whole story, not just parts of our story, right? Because the, mm -hmm. the, the whole story is what leads us to all the parts that we say, yeah, you know, society says, oh, that's great. Good job. Medal at the Olympics. Uh, well, long story short, because as, as you can imagine, because you, you, you probably know a little bit of it, it, it was a, it was, it was a journey, but I had gotten myself in a very, you know, bad situation by the time I had graduated college and I was fighting uh, anorexia, severe anorexia in and out of treatment centers and, and hospitals. And I had a very intense cocaine habit to go along with it. And I fought anorexia for five years. It turned into a bulimia, which lasted about a year and, you know, sort sought treatment sort of, you know, here and there. Then, then my, you know, parents got involved trying to, you know, help me to get better. And I, you know, you have to want to, right. And I didn't want to for a long time, but I finally made a shift and said, okay, I think I'm probably going to die of this mm. disease. But I owe it to my family to try, to try and get some help. Because at least if I die, then they will know that I tried, which of course wasn't going to matter if I died. What do I die if I had tried or not tried to them? But that's what I told myself. And so I went somewhat reluctantly, but also gratefully 
to a new therapist that I, I happened to meet uh, who was giving a talk on fear at the basement of a Borders bookstore in Los Angeles. And her name was Chris Edstrom. And uh, the talk touched me so deeply that I went up to her afterwards and asked if she, you know, does private sessions ever. ever and she said she does. So we started on a an almost three-year healing journey together. And at the end of that healing journey that had a lot of ups and downs, but but mostly ups moving forward in, in the right direction. And I was much, much better. I was not uh, practicing anorexic or bulimic anymore. And I was starting to be able to live life and be involved in life and work again and, and uh, be with people I loved and experience the world. And she very kind of haphazardly almost said to me in one of our last sessions, she said, Dotsie, you know, I know that you like to be outside and you like to move. I mean, I think she knew that there was an athlete in there. I did grow up competing in saddlebag horseback riding. I grew up in Kentucky. And so she said, I know there's an athlete in there and I just want you to pick some kind of sport or activity or movement, whatever it might be so that you can move your body in a healthy way again, because I hadn't done that for a, a long time. I had the overexercise component of anorexia where I would spend eight, nine hours a day in the gym on the Stairmaster mm -hmm. and, and the, you know, the um, treadmill and the elliptical and all those. And so it was like, don't pick that. You have to pick something that you really don't have any negative connections to. And I just spat out of my mouth, how about I get a bike? I thought, wow, that sounds really freeing to ride a bike up and down Pacific Coast Highway and into the beautiful mountains of Los Angeles. I had just pretty, just a couple of years before that moved to Los Angeles. I just mm -hmm. thought, oh gosh, I never, and I just kept feeling like I wanted to feel free <laughs> because I was feeling free from, from my eating disorder. So then I thought, well, what is like total freedom look like of just being able to, you know, try something new. So anyway, that's really, I picked up a bike. She, she said, I love the idea. Go get a bike. I went and got an, an, an old used mountain bike with slick tires on it and started riding around and and then it, it took 14 years to get the Olympics, but it was certainly, that was never, <laughs> that was certainly not the goal at the beginning uh, or even the middle of my career, but it just, um, the journey to the, uh, what ended up being the Olympic games was just really, it was really just a journey in, in curiosity because mm. I was not supposed to be a professional athlete. I was not supposed to be an Olympian. There was nobody that was expecting that out of me. So I, um, and quite the contrary would be what they were expecting. And so I just got to have these this whole period of time in my life where I could just wake up every day and be curious about how far I could get that day, whether that was literally how far I could get. Could I ride 50 miles a day? Could I ride 60? Or as, I, as it began to be noticed by the U.S. national team and get to go on some trips with them, just like, can I make it through a stage race in France without crashing or or dying from a crash or because it's a very dangerous sport and I crashed a lot and my technical skills were not good in the beginning because I was coming into the sport quite late because I was 26 when I picked up the bike. So, but it, so it was, it was just, I just kept being able to ask what if basically every day. Wow. And that just drove me for 14 years. That's inspirational in the sense that you went through this journey and I want to pause a little bit in a certain area of your story because I feel like it's something that's understated mm -hmm. in, in the human experience mm -hmm. in terms of getting support, mm. of, of unlocking, yeah. getting gaining that awareness and then taking the steps to work through that understanding to be in a space where you're at least attempting to master your experience. Right. And, and, and as you start to do that, you realize that, okay, this is, going, this is going to be an ongoing process for the remainder of your life. And part of the joy of that is being able to experience that. Can you take us a little bit into what that did for you, you know, what that unlocked for you from the space of people who may be listening, this, listening to this, who may feel stuck mm -hmm. and, and whatever their circumstances are and not know how to get past that. Because I know for me personally, I went through a five-year journey where I started to really, you know, get support from communities and groups and actual programs that yeah. allowed me to 
you know, really step into who Sean is. And that opened up the ability for me to do things like what I'm doing right now and leaving my job at the school district and taking the leap and doing all these different things that are scary at times. Mm -hmm. And I've never felt freer in my life, you know, being able to make those choices. So yeah. I just want to jump into that a little bit to see kind of what your thoughts are. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I, I think it, it was a time that I, I created so much belief in myself, which then created courage to push harder, try new things as, as in, the, in the realm of cycling, be bold, be brave in what I'm going to state that I want to do mm. and be in this sport. There's no, again, you know, it is harder to be the one that's supposed to win, the one that's supposed to do the thing, you know, it is there's a lot, I found a lot more freedom in, you know, no one was expecting any of this from me. Mm -hmm. So it just put me in the driver's seat, right? I didn't, I didn't have any outside pressure. I mean, it grew as my career grew. And I'd say the last five years, there was a lot of pressure, but most of our pressure is from ourselves anyway, yeah. right? I mean, it really is, to be honest. And I learned, you know, how to put appropriate amounts of pressure on myself so that I could really squeeze out what was going to be my very best that day. Mm -hmm. But those are some of the things of, of what I just mentioned that, that it, it allowed me to realize about myself and carry on past being an athlete right into yeah. today. Yeah. We want to hear from you. Visit our website to ask a question, leave a comment, or tell us how much you love the show. We'll play some of your messages during the episode, as well as directly to our guests. So be sure to leave your name and city and visit SoFloVegans.com slash podcast. And I mean, we're starting to move our way closer and closer to switch for good, but <laughs> I, I don't want to gloss over the Olympics because not a lot of us, a very small percentage yeah. of us get to experience that. So can you take us through that? Like, what was that moment in that 14 year buildup that yeah. you saw it being possible? This is a possibility of, of actually, you know, competing. Yeah, it was pretty magical. I, I'm, I've, I'm very, I don't know what the word is. I'm not a big fan of the word blessed, but because then it means there's those that are unblessed, but very fortunate that it went the right way. I mean, you know, there's only 990 Olympic medals at each Olympics, right? And, and hundreds of thousands of athletes are there. And you can easily have it go the other way, <laughs> go the wrong way, right? Which would... And I, I, I think it was so special for so many reasons, but for me in particular, I was, as I mentioned, just a few years away from my 40th birthday. And so I really had a notion that I would probably not be returning to the Olympics. Like if you go to the Olympics at 17, you know, there, you could, ah, I can do this three or four more times, you know, cause you're, you're 17 and you can do anything, even though there's certainly no guarantee you're going back to the Olympics. But I had this really immense gratefulness and appreciation for being there, especially because where I had come from in my life. And so it allowed me to totally and completely sink into the environment and the moments that were unfolding. I knew I wasn't going to experience them again. And so mm. I was just crazy present through the whole, the whole thing. And I had actually worked on that very hard with my sports psychologist because a couple of years before Olympics, it, more like a, a year, year and a half, I started really struggling from nerves and self-doubt again. Like I had in the beginning of my career, but I, I just, mm -hmm. it just all started coming back up. And so I was working with a sports psychologist and she was asking me when we first started working, you know, what are you afraid of? And I'd say it's, it's usually for an athlete, it's always like, letting people down, letting my teammates down. No. Like I'm just going to fall apart out there for no reason whatsoever and just let everyone down. And so we went through an exercise of kind of how I would feel before the race and, you know, the night before and the morning before. And, and what she realized was I had mastered what she called my three minutes of terror. My event is about three minutes long. So that's where she gets the three minutes okay. and she, that I had mastered that so she started, she shifted what were my, I knew how to like completely go out there and suck it up, 
Cause I did that. I did it national championships one, one year, a couple of years. I mean, it was, I was like, I was just getting really, it was really, I was in a really rough headspace, and I, I became very fearful of, of the sport and, uh, you know, letting people down. So she said, you've mastered three minutes of terror. We are going to turn this into your three minutes of opportunity. Hmm. You are going to go to the Olympic games. And those are your three minutes of opportunity because you are the one that did all the work to get here. And you've done this a thousand mil a million times in training probably by that point and there is no reason that you won't be the one to shine mm -hmm. why can't it be you why does it have to be the other teams that are you know slated to win the gold or win the medals so we worked so hard on that and so by the time i had got there i had done enough uh, so much visualization and meditation and, and work with her that i really was able to be in that three minutes of opportunity when I was there. And as most Olympic events, you go through qualifying and then semis and then finals if you make it to the final, right? So we had, mm -hmm. it was three rides to the, the gold medal round, which we lost because we, we came on with silver, but it was the best the US team had ever uh -huh. put out in any competition in any, for the last uh, three years in all of the competition leading into that Olympic games by a long shot. I mean, we absolutely shattered our personal best every single ride. And so it, it you know, it, it, it went our way that that's for sure. I don't know what the Olympic experience would be like if it didn't, but it's uh, it felt a little bit like a complete and total outer body experience on the podium. And I was wow. listening to, I was hearing my, my doctor, Wendy Borlabi in my head, who's now the mental coach for the Chicago Bulls, actually. Oh, cool. And I could hear her in my head on that podium, you know, like be there, dot C, sink into mm. it. But by the time I got to the podium, I couldn't sink in anymore. I was just I was up here somewhere. <laughs> it was just, it just felt surreal for probably 48 hours. And then I came back down to planet Earth. <laughs> Thank you for walking us through that. Uh, I, I mean, and you, you sharing the three minutes of opportunity. I feel like that could be applied to so many different things. Mm -hmm. You know, like just close your eyes as you're t talking about that particular moment, and just imagine what you're going through right now, and and just take that advice to heart. And um, I definitely will be doing that for myself as I get ready to step into some areas that are a little yeah. puckery for me. <laughs> right, because why? It's that's that's the question. Like, why can't you be the one to shine? Somebody's mm -hmm. probably going to shine. Like, so, yeah. I don't know, depending on who you're competing against or what, whatever you're doing in life or work or family or whatever you're striving for, why do we always think we're the ones that are going to falter or mm. fail? You know, it, it, doesn't ha it doesn't have to be that way. It could be you. Yeah. And, and speaking of you, horrible segue, um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> we, we, we talked about your vegan origin story. We're bouncing around like a Tarantino movie, but we've talked about your, uh, uh, your vegan origin story. So let's yeah. jump a little bit forward. You're, you've adopted this lifestyle and take us from that gap. Take us to the gap of you adopting the lifestyle and you founding Switch for Good. We're finally here, folks. I know you've been waiting for this moment <laughs> for you um, starting to switch for moment. good. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I stepped off the Olympic podium and retired immediately because that was that was enough. Oh, I, I, I did. I did like a comeback in 2014 because I thought I wanted to be 44 on the podium in 2016. But I decided not to go in that direction. But so I I basically thought, you know, oh, my God, all that hard work is behind me. You know, I'm just going to go. I don't know, relax for at least a while or maybe forever. Or can I just like do nothing for the rest of my life? You know, it was like, it was a big weight that was lifted. And I definitely needed some time to just kind of process through and decide who I was going to be, you know, for the next chapter or whatnot. And I ended up starting a consulting firm in, in the sports technology, which at the time was the very beginning of this quantified self-movement, right? With the fit, Fitbit and the Whoop and the Apple Watch and, you know, us being able to know every last ounce of information from inside our human body that we could possibly know. It wasn't 
you know, kind of, it was born pretty much around 2011, 2012. Mm -hmm. So we had used a lot of these different devices that weren't even out on the market yet, like all these sleep monitors and, and temperature. I mean, we went deep into a lot of aspects of that to gain that last percentage edge to stand on the podium. And so when I retired, I started a consulting firm in that because I was, I was definitely an expert from the athlete perspective and was having a ton of fun doing that and, you know, built, built a, built a whole consultancy firm. And then one day I was watching, I, I had, I was doing some like, you know, volunteering for different animal rights. I mean, it was sort of like, oh, this will be like, I'll volunteer on the side with this. I would leaflet or I would go speak or, you know, stuff like that. But I, there was no part of me that thought animal rights and you know, food justice and food equity and in, in the planet was going to be my career. I mean, there was just not even a second that I thought about that. I just was like, I, whenever I can, I want to give my time because I care and I'm, you know, 100% vegan and my husband is and just living this life, but I'm not going to like really do too much about it, you know? So I'm, I have this consulting firm. I'm sitting on the couch. It's 2018 by this point. I'm watching the <clears throat> Olympic trials. That's for, that was for the Winter Olympic Games in mm -hmm. um, Pyeongchang. And Remember, dairy industry sponsor of the U.S. Olympic team, this dairy industry, this dairy commercial comes on TV and it's a 30 second spot. And it is one of our best skiers that we have in, in the, the United States. And she's flying down a mountain super fast. And then they juxtapose, juxtapose you know, the word I'm trying to say <laughs> to her mom. And the little girl is like two and she has a bottle in her mouth of cow's milk. And you see the mom just kind of like, you know, walking with her and taking good care of her. And then you hear her mom say, I believe in you. You can do anything you set your mind to. And she's, then they go back to her skiing down the mountain. And, and then they end the commercial and they say, balanced nutrition and natural protein, you know, got milk. And I had this moment where I was like, how long are we going to like believe this ridiculousness? And why are they okay with just lying that this is a really superfood for a human being? Mm -hmm. And even just the words after natural protein, like there's any other kind of protein, all protein is natural protein <laughs> and balanced nutrition for a growing baby calf, no doubt for sure the best, but not for the, 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 the human, the growing baby human or the adult human, for God's sake, don't, and I just had this moment where I just, it was like my whole head just, you know, just went on reverse mode back to being an athlete and how much that was pressed upon us. And I was fully embedded by that point in understanding all the lies that the dairy industry had been telling for so long. And, you know, that we pay for those lies because it's our tax dollars. Currently yeah. today, 73% of the dairy industry's income comes from our federal government. So all of the federal government programs, all of the subsidies, like I'm literally paying for this shit to be, you know, said to us on this commercial. <laughs> and I just had this moment where I was like, my husband walked downstairs and, and I said, I said, babe, this is crazy. This can't go on anymore. Somebody has to say something. Somebody has to do something. And he just was like, I'm pretty sure that's you because <laughs> no one else is talking about this, but you, because, <laughs> you know, he would hear it over the year, you know, like he, he'd heard me say plenty of stuff about. And so I was like, Oh Lord, I don't want it to be me. Like, I don't, that sounds like a, I don't, that's like going up against a giant literally. But I had this idea. What if at the very end of this Olympic games, right? And I'm watching Olympic trials. So we're like six or seven weeks out from the Olympic games being over. What if we put on a commercial with athletes from all over the world that stand up and say, this is BS. Dairy is not a health food and we don't need it to win Olympic medals. And so I called a director and some funders that I had just been introduced to for randomly and a whole production team. And I spit out this idea and I don't know, it's just the, the way the universe works. Every, all they were like, we love it. Wow. We'll, we'll pay for it. We'll produce it. And I got together the athletes. We had seven athletes from four different countries standing up and putting on and, and saying, I mean, you could still find the commercial on YouTube. And so it was supposed to air on the closing ceremonies in six different markets across mm -hmm. the country. And I'm in Los Angeles, so I'm waiting for it to air. It aired in Washington, D.C. And then the dairy industry got it kicked off of NBC. Oh, wow. 
And that was the beginning of Switch for Good because the second I don't think we'd be here if if the if the commercials had played and everybody had been like, oh, my God, they were awesome. And now we've learned and I would have just gone about my business. But when they kicked it off, I was like, "Uh oh, no. This is not how this is going to unfold. You're going to have to deal with me. And so here we are fighting them and we're starting to win. (laughs) Wow. So this is 2018, correct? Mm -hmm. So from 2018 until now, you have, what are some of the things that you've come against? Because I, as soon as you talk about going against the dairy industry, it's like you have like the big five and dairy is probably the top three of those. What what are what are some of the what are some of the the obstacles that you've come across in that time yeah. period? Yeah, they're they're one of the the big ones, but they are very very scared. That is the it is the food, the animal food, that when people take it out of their diet, they feel so much better mm. so quickly. You don't feel so much better so quickly. If you were to remove turkey, let's say, your heart and your and your your vessels and your arteries are certainly going to know that you have removed a high fat animal food later on. Later on, but dairy because it is so inflammatory because it is not a makeup mm-hmm. for the human body. It is it is an allergen for a lot of people. Yeah. The more than seventy percent seventy percent of the people in the world have lactose intolerant, which those symptoms are awful and disgusting. There's so many people that have a negative experience when they consume dairy that people get really passionate about not eating it very quickly. I mean, people can, we've heard stories, people say, I mean, 24 hours, it's like, if they have true lactose intolerance, 24 hours later, you're like, oh my God, it feels so much better. So because of that, it is very easy to have the conversation with individuals making the switch because it's like, oh, just try it for like five days or three days. I mean, it, it really is, is, a, is a big game changer very quickly. And so the dairy industry knows that. They also know that plant-based milks are making, they're 18% of the market now. Plant-based oh, wow. meats are like 3% of the market, right? So they, they, they are really starting to see the push. And they're, they're also fully well aware that the 73% of their incomes comes from the federal government. So if that goes away or that those laws are changed with the subsidies, they are completely tanked overnight. Now we're down to only 29,000 dairy farms too, which there were many, many more in, in, in these former years. And so we've come up against, we're coming up against them straight up right now in our Ad Soy Act that mm-hmm. uh, Representative Troy Carter and Representative Nancy Mace introduced a bipartisan bill. It'll be introduced in the Senate when they come back from recess by John Fetterman and Republican John Kennedy, not of the Kennedy family. And with this, we're seeing representatives and senators from all over the map, people in heavy dairy states like Fetterman, he's from Pennsylvania, that want there to be a fair and just equitable choice at our lunch school the lunch counter for children it's 51 million of them in our school system and it is it blows them away when we educate them because a lot of them didn't know I'll have to say I didn't know you know five years ago either that that is the only fluid beverage choice yeah. in schools period end of story cow's milk and they think that it's only fair that there's a choice so Democrat Republican conservative progressive they really all are align and believe. However, the power of the dairy lobby is a problem. And right after we introduced the Ad Soy Act, or Troy Carter and Nancy Mace did, five weeks later, Representative Glenn Thompson introduced the Whole Milk Act. Because mm. so, they, I mean, they started effing with us like very early on. And that's just literally to bring whole milk back in school, which the dietary guidelines vehemently has said multiple times over that we don't want all of that saturated fat in our kiddos' arteries, that that is not a good idea. And that's why they went to 2% and then 1% low-fat milk in in schools, because they used to get whole milk. But he thinks that kids don't really like it because it just tastes like dirty water. And if you have put whole milk in, they'll drink it because they're not, a lot of the kids are not drinking the milk. The USDA tells us from the reports that they do every year, you just, you can look them up. 
29% of the milk cartons are thrown away untouched, unopened. They don't even open them. So straight onto the tray because the school gets paid and then straight into the garbage can. That's a gigantic percentage. So it's showing you that the the kids, the kids just don't want them. So the dairy lobby is still strong, but we are really starting to feel some of the the, the kinks in, in, in their armor and the fact that they are definitely, definitely very worried about just the simple truth, just the simple truth getting out there that they've been hiding since day one. I, I think it's brilliant that you're starting with our, you're focusing on dairy because dec- a decade before I even went vegan, my whole family stopped drinking you know, milk because of lactose intolerance. Okay. So, so that was, so me giving, I usually, when you hear and you ask people, like, what's your biggest challenge going vegan? It's like dairy. So it's like, for me, it wasn't, Mm -hmm. I know there's a lot of people out there that are like that as well. Obviously cheese is a different, different idea as a different conversation when you're looking at milk and cheese, Mm -hmm. but milk specifically and going to the school, you know, I could tell, I could say firsthand, having worked at an elementary school for 12 years and worked with the school district, um, who are making the decisions for three and a half years, that what you're saying is right on the nose, at least for Broward mm-hmm. County. Like you'd go into right. a school and you would see full trays of them stowing the milk away, you know, them complaining about the milk. You know, I even had the thought of, you know, like if there's a place you want to start, start with the milk because it's like, yeah. Yeah. it's it's the first literally at least the school I worked at, the first thing they pick up when they're getting their lunch, they had that little milk container where you pick up your chocolate or your whatever type of milk that you want. So, um, so where, so you said it's about to be the ad soy, how would you say the ad soy bill? Yeah, it's a bill, right. Where were we in that process right now? And what is your, how do you feel about, you know, the, the projection of where it's going to be going? Yeah. Well, this is my first vegan rodeo with trying to pass a bill. And I have learned so much. Switch for Good has partnered with uh, Animal Wellness Action, Wayne Paselli, who has 40 years of passing local, state, and federal bills. So it's it's been uh, it, it's been a really, it's been frustrating for all of the reasons you can imagine going up against the, the dairy industry, but it's been just a joy to learn how the process works. It's a it's a good process. It's also a frustrating process. And yes, there are so many politics involved and mm-hmm. money involved and the, you know, trade of trade of hand. But I think, you know, it, only the, the statistics are that only 7% of bills that get introduced passed. I mean, there's like 7,000 bills introduced every year. So it's, it's, a, it's, it's a lot. We're going to see how we go. The beauty of this, I mean, you can't get anything passed anymore unless it's bipartisan. I mean, mm-hmm. gone are those days. They, they, nothing passes. So there's, there's, there's some vegan bills that are in there now, but they're just, you know, Democratic signatures. And so you really have got to excite people from both sides of the aisle. And it's been interesting to learn that in the meetings that we have with the staffers of the representatives and senators, it's a different conversation given if they, so if they're, if the, if they're Democrats who are, we ha, when we started this, I mean, we've been working on this, we're, we're at the end of our third year work, working on this because when we very first started, we tried to get it done, not in a bill. We tried to get the, the agriculture department, secretary of agriculture to, to, to make some changes for fairness and equity. And th- that didn't go our way. So we ended up obviously going to a bill. But there are, you know, there's a lot of headwinds in the beginning in, in with this, just the education, like I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. some things you don't have to educate on, you know, it's just, it's, it's sort of cut and dry, but so many didn't even realize that there is not a choice in school, but with the Democrats, they, they all really leaned into the food equity aspect and the food injustice aspect. And the mm-hmm. fact that children of color are much more affected by lactose intolerance, like really anywhere from 75 to 76 to 98%. And that's, that's gigantic, right? And the symptoms and how that's affecting their ability Mm. to learn in school, right? Why would they be served a beverage that's going to inhibit their learning potential? It's insane. So a lot of it was education. But then when we started after the first year, then we started meeting with Republicans and, and the, the rhetoric for them was was more about, you know, they don't like big government and government deciding things for, for the people and big government pro- programs. So they don't like the fact that there's a milk mandate. 
I mean, there's a liter- I mean, literally, there's a milk mandate in our schools, and they and they hate that. And boy, do they hate the waste, right? Because it the National School Lunch Program is about a billion dollars a year that we spend of our money, yours and my money. And so, if 30 percent of the milk cartons are being thrown away, that's 300 million bucks just uh-huh. lit on fire, right? When you watched it in school, they not even taking a sip, just straight into the trash because they have so- to. Yeah, because they well, they t- in order for the school to get reimbursed, they take the milk, and then it's like, oh, it's crazy! What a crazy system! Why would that ever be the case if they're throwing it away? And in what other world? What other private sector are you going to have thirty percent of waste and just be like, meh? You know, like <laughs> no, I mean, it's just crazy. So they're pretty fired up about that that side. So so both both sides have all sorts of, uh, have, have developed because they've, they've done the deep dive now and they've learned. And, and, you know, I, so I, I think we have a good shot. It will get, it bills kind of, I've learned, you know, they get a lot of momentum and it'll drop a little bit depending on what's going on. And we kind of know what's going on in politics in America right now. So other issues kind of come up. It's going to get a lot of energy when it gets introduced in the Senate, which will be right after recess. So, or, you know, September 15th or after, because of Fetterman and Kennedy and 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 Rand Paul and Cory Booker, the, the the ones really behind this, it's so bipartisan. These four guys uh-huh. think very differently on a lot of issues, but they've come together on this. So it'll get more energy and momentum then, and then we'll see. I mean, we're we we hope to pass it before the end of the year, but you know, there's a, there's 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 some different options that we have to to play, but. We'll is there is there anything that our listeners or the people who are watching this can do to support? To yes, help? yes, for sure. I thought this was kind of a farce before I got really involved in trying to pass a bill. I thought that it was just kind of like no big deal, didn't matter, and was sort of silly when they were like, write your representatives and centers, call your representatives centers. I was like, oh, please, like they're listening to me. Like I'm going to call, you know, hey, Katie Porter, please. Well, it matters. It really matters. They only get a certain number of calls and letters every week. And some weeks can be completely dead. I mean, they, they just, but it really matters what their constituents want and what their constituents say and what their constituents actually take action on, right? To actually pick up the phone and make a call or send a letter. Mm -hmm. So we need a massive, like, rush, a tidal wave of people calling and writing into their senators and representatives to pass the SOID Act. And we've made it crazy easy for you, of course, because why wouldn't we, right? We need this done. So if you go to switchforgood.org, you can see the Ad Soy Act. It's, it's right on the homepage, just down a tiny bit on the left and click on that. And, and right there, we have a pre-written letter, which you can edit. You could write your own letter, or you can literally just put in your name. And then of course it needs your zip code because it needs to know which representative senators to send the letter to. And it will go directly to your representative and two senators in, oh, wow. in, in your state and district. And that it's, it's massive. I, I don't, I didn't realize I was making a difference when I would sign something here and there, you know, back in the day, but we really need that flood to come in from now through the December. Okay. So yes, people take action. Yes, it matters. <laughs> and as as we start to wind down the episode, I want to make sure I give you an opportunity to share with our audience anything that you want them to know about Switch for Good and the projects that you're working on. So I want to give you this opportunity to to share that. Oh, thank you. Well, when we first started, we were pretty much completely focused on behavior change and human behavior change. And that's still at the core of us. And we do billboard campaigns and TV commercials and, you know, lots of, we have lots and lots of resources on the internet for people to take the dairy-free challenge and dairy-free in a day and the 50 ways to leave the udder and all sorts of fun stuff in, in those categories that are positive and, and you know, empowering and, and making f- people feel better. But since, since our beginnings, we have stretched out into governmental policy change. Uh, you know, and AdSoy is a good example of that. Corporate pressure and policy change. We're working very, very hard with Star- Starbucks to get them to drop their plant milk upcharge mm-hmm. because it's just absolutely insane and and sh- shouldn't shouldn't be the case um charging people for something that doesn't make them sick and so working 
quite hard on getting that done. We have um, the big day in New York City coming up October 9th. So they have to watch out for that with the, with the, with the Starbucks situation. So it's really just, I, I believe those three prongs are what are going to continue to move the needle. They have some, but right, government and corporations and then us humans, uh, right? That, that and, and if we all start to lean towards the shift together and make changes, that that um, will eventually get us closer to a vegan world. I don't know if an entirely vegan world is possible, but we will be able to make the most strides. So those are the three areas that that we work in. And um, we've just launched a, a kids program for pediatricians and pediatric dietitians and nurses, and that's kidsandmilk.org. So I won't go on about that, but you can go around there and see, you know, if you have, um, you know, a kid or a parent, a friend in your life that 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 needs help in that category, that this this will this, this site will be helpful, and they can kind of cruise around and see what they and get what they need there. And, and for one more time, for everyone that's listening, where can they go to follow this, follow your mission, and and support? Yeah, well, switch for good is switchforgood.org and it's the number four. So not spelled out. So switch the number four good.org. And then we're on all the social channels as switch for good. And then kidsandmilk.org uh, launches tomorrow, actually. The, the the press release goes out. And uh, so that's that's a that's a whole nother website because it's um yeah, it's it's for kids and switch for good is not focused just on kids. So we we did a whole nother another site for it. So it's uh it's very is very well built out, and and I think it have a lot of people and 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 kiddos and pediatricians and and whatnot. So kidsandmilk.org. So that brings us to our final segment. And if you are a longtime listener to the podcast, you know what's coming up. It's the moment from the heart where I essentially turn over the podcast to our guests to give one final message to you, and then that will be the conclusion of the podcast. Well, before we do that, I just want to thank you so much for coming on the show, for sharing your story. I really enjoyed hearing it and getting a little bit closer and connected to you. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> All right. So I'm going to give, I'm going to uh, give the floor to you now. Okay. Well, you know, you mentioned earlier that you have a lot of listeners that are new to this movement that are new to changing their diets over from, from animals to plants. And all I really want to say is just thank you and say how much appreciation I have for the newbies. Cause I can easily get into a very dark and sad place, almost on a daily basis, if you will, doing this work because you constantly feel like you are slamming your head up against a brick wall. And you a lot of times feel like you like you aren't winning and you aren't making progress. But it's the folks that are new to this movement, new to this lifestyle, new to eating the 55,000 plants that we have <laughs> to choose from over the, you know, four to five animals that we used to eat that really, truly inspire me and keep me going. So it's really just to thank you. And if, if you have a story that you want to share or a couple of sentences, I love to hear from people because it's, it's, it's the newbies in this that, that keep me going because it shows me that people are changing. Things are different. We are moving toward a kinder, more loving, more accepting, more sustainable world. So thank you. You've been listening to the SoFlow Vegans Podcast. As you can see, our passion is to help people navigate the vegan lifestyle, having on vegan experts from around the globe. Sean is the founder and, of course, the host of SoFlow Vegans, an organization created to help make South Florida a global hotspot for veganism. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon. But in the meantime, find us on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube at SoFlow Vegans. Find the show and more at SoFlowVegans.com slash podcast. And for questions or comments, send an email to contact at SoFlowVegans.com. Our food is grown, not born. See you next time.